Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Good morning again. How are you doing? Great. Right. Escape. It means to break from, free from confinement or control, to elude or to get free from someone, to, to succeed in avoiding or eluding something dangerous, unpleasant, or undesirable. Escape. Have you heard of escape rooms? Yeah? Where you pay to be in a locked room with some friends, and you have to solve a series of puzzles to get free before a clock expires? Have you ever been to one? Yeah. yeah. I went to one with some of you a few weeks ago. It was fun. We managed to get out escape in time, but only with a little help. <laughs> escape is a common theme in a lot of stories and movies. Have any of you read The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien? Have you seen the movies? I've got a little clip here from the second movie. Let me set the scene a little bit, though. Bilbo Baggins, the hobbit, is on a quest with 13 dwarves to fight a dragon and restore the dwarves' homeland in the Lonely Mountain. But on their way, the dwarves have been captured and are currently locked up in a dungeon. It's up to Bilbo to make good their escape. So here's our little clip. All right. I love that little spot where the barrels had just rolled down and he's standing there and he realizes he forgot to think of some one little thing, how he was going to get out of there. So that, I think that's a classic escape sequence. But although the Bible passage of today is about someone being freed from prison, it's not about escape. It's about deliverance. It's about rescue. What's the difference? Let's find out. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, verse 1. I want to do just a little review of what we've been studying in Acts. The church has been growing in leaps and bounds. It started in Jerusalem and spread to Judea, then to Samaria, across a cultural boundary. Peter shared the good news with some Gentiles, crossing another cultural boundary. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Then, a couple weeks ago, we heard the gospel was spread to Antioch, where Barnabas shared the Lord Jesus with Greek-speaking Gentiles, and large numbers were brought to the Lord, where they were first called Christians. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Who is this Herod the king? He's Herod Agrippa I. You think your family has problems? (laughs) This man's father had been killed by his own father, Herod the Great, the one that tried to kill off Jesus when he was a baby, remember that? Herod Agrippa had been educated in Rome and then was made king over the whole Palestine area by Caesar, and was now the king of the Jews. 
He was partly Jewish and was always trying to please the Jewish leaders. He was a treacherous, superficial, extravagant ruler, but not as bad as his grandfather had been. So when it says he laid his hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, what does mistreat? Well, it means to injure, harm, abuse, or hurt. Not killing them, though, short of that. And so the, so the church went from peace to mistreatment. Why the change in attitude? Probably the Jewish leaders didn't like the fact that Christians were reaching out to Gentiles. And, but was this a surprise, this mistreatment? Not really. Jesus told them, speaking to the disciples in Matthew 10, chapter 17, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But then Herod went a step further in verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Who was James? He was one of the twelve apostles. James and John were the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee. And Herod had him beheaded. As king, he could pretty much do whatever he wanted. This description is so terse. James is executed. How could God let this happen? I want to take a couple of minutes and talk about Christians suffering and dying as martyrs. It seems like a foreign thing to us, maybe like something that only happened long ago. But it does happen today, particularly in majority Muslim countries. There are many parts of the world where it is dangerous to be identified with Christ. We tend to think of suffering and dying for Christ as something to be avoided at all costs. But that's not the model that Christ showed us with his own life. Suffering for Christ is not the self-inflicted suffering. It's being willing to suffer voluntarily and live sacrificially for Christ and his gospel. God does everything, important, does everything with a purpose. If he chooses to call his children to suffering and self-sacrifice, he must have very important purposes to achieve through them. In, Christ's de- in Jesus' death on the cross, God has revealed to us that suffering and self-sacrifice are his specific methods for tackling the problems of rebellion, evil, and the sin of mankind. His method is still the method of the cross. So there's three basic things that are achieved by deaths of martyrs. It's not a pointless thing. The first is when an ambassador of Christ speaks the truth in love to a culture whose eyes are blinded and who are hostile to the gospel, and the Christian meets death with joy, a strange miracle occurs. The eyes of the unbelievers are opened, and they're enabled to see the truth of God, leading to them to believe in the gospel. The second is when the martyrs meet death without fear, Satan's instrument, the fear of dying, is rendered powerless, and the devil is crushed and defeated. And third, the glory of God shines through the beauty and splendor of self-sacrifice as nowhere else. Martyrdom has the power of revealing the love of God to those in darkness. And as we're going to see, prayer is the most important thing we can do on behalf of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to know more about Christian persecution in the world today, check out 
the Voice of the Martyrs website at www.persecution.com. And I also, um, I just happened to, that they, uh, I saw an article yesterday that I reposted on Facebook called How Should We Respond to the Persecution of Christians? Check them out. They're worth a read. So that's my first point. God is sovereign. He possesses supreme authority. Everything is under his control. In Hebrews 11, it's, it's the hall of fame of faith, and he's talking about how some of the men and women of faith escaped the edge of the sword. Others were put to death with the sword, but they were all, faith was the common thing. They, these were all believers. Acts 12, verse 3. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. The days of unleavened bread are Passover week. That's Passover week. <coughs> so after having James ex- executed, Herod's poles shot up. It pleased the Jews. That's what he was looking for. So he arrested Peter, intending to publicly execute him as well. He wasn't just in jail for a while. He was going to bring him out and kill him, have him killed. And remember what Peter had said to Jesus just a few years earlier in Luke twenty-two thirty-three. But Peter said to Jesus, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Looks like he'll maybe get his chance here. Verse 4, when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him. You remember Peter's been arrested before. The first time was in Acts 4, verse 3. And they, the Jewish leaders, laid hands on them, Peter and John, put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. And then again in Acts 5, 18, they, the Jewish leaders again, laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. So maybe this is his third strike. This is serious. Now he's on death row. He's being guarded by four Roman soldiers on each three-hour shift, rotating to keep constant watch against anyone trying to break him out. These were stronger measures than usual, because last time he had somehow escaped. None of the guards would be sleeping while they were on duty under the penalty of death. This is the rest of verse 4. They put him in prison, delivering him over to four guards... Four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people, to publicly execute him. The people didn't like executions during Passover week. Remember, that's why they postponed arresting Jesus in Matthew 26, 4. And they, the chief priests and the elders, plotted together to seize Jesus, seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, the Passover week. Otherwise, a riot might occur. So when it was done, then that's when, it was, that's when his execution would take place. Verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. Peter was kept in prison for a week, but at the same time, by contrast, God's people kept praying fervently for him. The word fervently is the Greek word ektenos, It means eagerly, fervently, earnestly, constantly, continuously, without ceasing. The church was seriously praying for Peter. Why weren't they trying to break him out? 
or send the Hobbit in after him. <laughs> or maybe get a stay of execution. Does prayer really work? Does God listen? Let's find out. Verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. This is the night before his execution. And Peter was chained to a soldier on each side. He was sleeping soundly. He was not worried or afraid. He was not expecting that God would deliver him, as we'll see. But he knew that if he was put to death in the morning, he would go to be in the presence of Jesus. That's my second point. Believers don't need to fear death. There's so many verses that talk about this. Psalm 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 118, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Isaiah 26.3 The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. In Philippians 4, verse 6 and 7 Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's Peter sleeping soundly on the night before his execution. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly! And his chains fell off his hands. The angel suddenly appears. He doesn't break in. And the cell had just been pitch black a moment before. This wasn't some candle or lamp. The chains fell off his hands. The guards didn't unlock them. And what were the guards doing during this? Were they just oblivious? Were they hiding? Were they petrified? It doesn't say. Clearly, they didn't get in the way, though. And why did the angel come? He was sent by God as an answer to the church's fervent prayers. That's my third point. God answers prayer. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence which we have before him, before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. So this was no sympathizer trying to break Peter out. This was not an inside job. Peter's not escaping by his wits. This is a miraculous rescue by a messenger from God, an angel. Verse 8, the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. The angel is telling Peter every little thing to do. Tells him how to get dressed. And he did so. He did it. It kind of reminds me of a kid that you have to tell him every little thing to do. Verse 9, and he went out and continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. He went out of the cell and followed the angel. It sounds like Peter was still half asleep, but he's following anyway. Verse 10, when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. 
And they went out and along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. Again, what were the guards doing? They sure don't seem to notice the prison break. I'm afraid they're really going to get it later. The gate opened, for, opened by itself, opened for them by itself. I like this Greek word, automatos. That's where we get the word automatic from. It's an adjective meaning something that happens without visible cause, by itself or of its own accord. And this, by the way, this wasn't the first time an angel had rescued believers from prison. It wasn't the last time either. Acts 5.19, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison. So now that they were out of the prison, in, in the Jerusalem street, the angel vanished. Mission accomplished. Verse 11. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he became fully awake, when he came to his senses, he knew that the Lord rescued him from death. It wasn't just a dream. He did not escape by himself. It reminds me of Daniel's friends in the fiery furnace in Babylon. D- Daniel 3.28. Nebuchadnezzar the king responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him after they violated the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. So what do you think? Does this kind of thing happen today? Uh, Here's an excerpt from one of my commentaries. A striking modern parallel has has been quoted more than once from the experiences of Sundar Singh, a Christian Indian missionary in the early 20th century. By the order of the chief lama of a Tibetan community, he was thrown into a dry well, the cover of which was securely locked. Here he was left to die like many others before him, whose bones and rotting flesh lay at the bottom of the well. On the third night, when he had been calling to God in prayer, he heard someone unlocking the cover of the well and removing it. Then a voice spoke, telling him to take hold of the bottom of the rope that was being lowered. He did so and was glad to find a loop at the bottom of the rope in which he could place his foot, for his arm had been injured before he was thrown down. Then he was drawn up and the cover was replaced and locked, but when he looked around to thank his rescuer, he could find no trace of him. The fresh air revived him and his injured arm felt whole again. When morning came, he returned to the place where he had been arrested and resumed preaching. News was brought to the chief lama that the man who had been thrown into the execution well had been liberated and was preaching again. Sundar Singh was brought before him in question and told the story of his release. The lama declared that someone must have got hold of the key and let him out. But when search was made for the key, it was found attached to the lama's own girdle. You know, even aside from Sundar Singh and experiences like his, I want to tell you that, yes, God rescues people all over the world every day. Remember the song that we sang at the beginning of the service, And Can It Be, by Charles Wesley? This verse, which we didn't sing, has language that's a little harder to understand. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
fast bound in sin and nature's night. In other words, I've been a slave to sin for many years. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. God saw me and made me come alive. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. Your light shone in my darkness. My chains fell off. My heart was free. God freed me from my sin. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Its author is making an analogy between God's rescue of Peter from certain death in the verses we just looked at, an analogy between that and God's rescue of the author and each of us from the penalty of sin, which is certain death. We are each born with a sin nature that we are not able to escape from. We need to be rescued, and only God can do that. That's my fourth point. God is able to rescue us. Has God rescued you, or are you still trying futilely to escape? You can ask God to rescue you, and he will answer you. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for rescuing me, and I thank you for rescuing all, rescuing all of the, those who believe in you. We were trapped in a, a dungeon of sin that we had made for ourselves that we could never get free from. We could never escape without your rescue. Thank you so much for loving us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.